Um, right, so like Debbie said, my name's Maggie Keller. I'm on staff here. I'm really excited to be, hi, <laughs> really excited to be here tonight. Um, you know, I was uh, feeling a little bit of anxiety, but the truth is, I mean, you guys are like my family. You are my tribe, my place to belong, so no need to be nervous. Also, when I told my three-year-old that I was feeling nervous, she said, it's okay, mommy, I hold your hand. And I thought that was pretty cute. There they are. Okay, so these are my kids. Uh, Jack is uh, four and a half. Grace is three. Thomas is 10 months. Um, they're super cute. Actually, you'll probably see them in the great room after the service running shoeless. And Jack will probably be throwing down Wyatt Moberg, who's right over there. So you can find them wrestling in the great room after this. Um, and my kids go to daycare here on site uh, the few days a week that I work here. And one of their best friends has become the church organist. Jane Nienaber is her name. Here's a picture of Jane giving my Jack his first organ lesson when he was just over a year old. Um, Jane is just an incredible person um, and has become a dear friend. Every Thursday she visits our kids in the daycare and she takes her shoes off and she gets down on the floor and she plays Legos with them and reads them books and she shoots hoops with them, and uh, they just, lo they love her, and we love her. And a couple of weeks ago after the Maundy Thursday service, we were going to pick our kids up from the, sink, uh, from the nursery, rather, and we were walking back down the hallway, and it's Monday Thursday, you, you know that we leave in silence and darkness. So all the lights are off in the church. There's a couple of lights on on the floor, but that hallway that my kids have gone down, you know, a million times, it looks really different. And we are walking down, and I saw Gracie freeze and she stopped and uh, I squinted and I saw an adult kind of crouch down with their arms out saying, hi, Jack and Grace. But it was dark and my kids didn't see that it was Jane and they didn't know her. They didn't recognize her and so they were afraid. And my kids know Jane, they love her, they trust her, but that darkness, it just, uh, the moment took on a different feeling. And as soon as I said, hey guys, it's Jane, they ran right to her, they gave her big hugs, they trusted her completely, but that darkness, it just made things look different, and they didn't recognize her for who she was. So I kept thinking of that story as I went through uh, tonight's text, because tonight's story is about two disciples who don't recognize Jesus. And uh, I would like you to um, join with me in this reading. You can follow along in your pew Bible. It's uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. But it also is a really good story. So if you would like, you can just listen. And uh, the, um, what will be on the screen is some artwork, uh, just kind of chronicling the story. So here we go. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Now that same day... Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb earlier this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. 
He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So um, we've been in Luke for like 87 years, it feels like. Actually, it hasn't been, I counted, it's been 23 weeks. We started Luke back in December as part of the narrative lectionary. And uh, so here's what we know about Luke. Let's remind ourselves. So um, Luke is writing this gospel. We are pretty sure he's a doctor. The details really matter. This is a historical account. But Luke's gospel is actually part one of two. So the gospel is the prelude, it's the setup. Um, And then part two is the book we call Acts. And in, in the gospel of Luke, we learn who Jesus is and what he's starting. And then in Acts, we find out what Jesus continues to do through his people, through the church. And um, the Emmaus Road story, the one we just read, that's supposed to be the kind of story that we get swept up in. It's supposed to be the story that we tell over and over again as part of Jesus' continued work in the world. So the story is set on a road, which is not surprising because roads are very important in Luke. Luke loves him some roads, okay? It's the, they're on the road all the time because Luke tells the story of where Jesus goes, when, and with whom. And so they go a lot of places, so they're on the road a lot. But the road's also a device. The road is a symbol for faith on the move. We know this, right? I mean, belief is not static, your faith as it is today is not what it looked like five years ago. It's probably not even what it looked like five months ago. Um, so belief and faith is this ever-changing thing. So the road is a great, if a bit cliched, uh, term for, for faith, the journey of faith, the road that we're on. Um, but the, the road in this story, it actually marks the path between um, misconception all the way to recognition and then right response. It's from blindness to sight from recognizing that he's there to responding accordingly. Um, So it's the afternoon of the resurrection, and uh, we see these two apostles. One is named, one is not. Um, Why is only one named? Well, it's sort of like uh, if I were telling you a story about a mutual friend, I would use their name, and you knew that if you had any questions about the details of my story, you'd just go to that person that I named. It's sort of like Lucas saying, "Um, guys, I know it's crazy. I'm saying that Jesus just appeared, but if you have any questions, you go ask Cleopas, and the original audience would have said, yeah, Cleopas. We know him because he's one of the disciples. Um, So that's why one is named and one is not. Um, And so um, they're, they're walking and then all of a sudden Jesus appears and they're kept from recognizing him. There's a couple of theories on this one. Certainly there's an element of mystery here. Um, the word in the Greek, it's, it's more like held. Their eyes were held from recognizing him. And the text doesn't tell us by whom or why. But I think the simplest explanation, like my kids with Jane, is this. And they just weren't looking for him. The disciples are on the road out of, Emmaus, or out of Jerusalem toward Emmaus. 
If you were expecting Jesus to raise from the dead like he said he would after three days, you would not be leaving Jerusalem. So that gives us a little bit of an insight to where the disciples are. And where they are is not a very good place. They're really not in a great headspace right now, if you will. So they're on the road, they're not in a good place, and he asks them what they're talking about, and they stop walking. And their eyes are downcast, and they start to tell him, well, there's this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, and he was amazing, and he healed, and he taught, but then our leaders had him crucified. And we had hoped he was the one to rescue us. We had hoped. We expected. We were actively waiting. Do you hear the disappointment in their voices? We're confused. We don't understand. When you and I say the words, we had hoped, disappointment always follows, right? We had hoped the cancer was in remission. We had hoped we'd get the job. We had hoped the offer on the house would be accepted. We had hoped we'd be pregnant this month. We had hoped that the treatment plan would be different this time. There's always a big but that follows, we had hoped. And the disciples are saying, we'd hoped he was the one to rescue us, but... It's three days later, and he's still not here. So you and I are more comfortable with future tenses, okay? Things like, um, I will be okay. Everything will work out in the end. And that is just not where the disciples are at right now. We had hoped he was going to rescue us, but he's not here. Do you see that Jesus does not try to fix their grief? He could have, right? He could have just opened their eyes and said, it's me. And then their mourning would have turned to joy. They would have realized he's there, but he doesn't do that. He just walks alongside them in their grief. Maybe you have experience with this Jesus, this one who just walks alongside you in your sadness. Did you know that that's what he wants to do? The risen Jesus validates your grief. He cares for you, and he is with you in it. Hear me, church, the resurrected son of God cares about your sadness, and he just wants to be near you. Are your eyes open? Grief blinded those disciples um, to who Jesus was, and it blinds us today. See that Jesus wants to walk with you in your grief. So we know that their grief blinded them because they confessed to Jesus that they didn't believe the women. Our women went to the tomb this morning, they tell him, and, uh, um, and I kind of imagine Jesus being like, yep, I know, I was there. <laughs> this whole scene is actually sort of ironic gold, right? Because they're like, well, the women went to the tomb, and they said they saw angels, but we didn't believe them. We went and checked it out. It didn't look like that, and they're saying it right to the face of the risen Lord, okay? If there were like a Bible version of the office, this would make it in it, right? okay. You know what I'm talking about. Peter would be Michael Scott, right? Okay, I'm the only Office fan. Okay, we'll, we'll gather in the great room afterwards and we'll like cast the whole Bible version of the Office. It'll be a great exercise. Okay, so the thing is, the disciples just are not handling this disappointment well. I was talking with my friend Melissa this week, and she's a pastor here, and we were talking through this, and the, frankly, the disciples are a mess, okay? They, the women are the first to know because they are at the tomb, the disciples are on the road out of Jerusalem, so they're not the first to find out. And then the disciples don't even believe them. And actually, a few verses earlier in this same chapter, they write it off as nonsense. The danger here, guys, is that we sort of feel that we've risen above this patriarchal social structure, um, and that we think that, oh, well, if the women, if they came to us today, 
in the modern church, we would believe them. We'd say, yeah, you saw angels, tell us all about it. Jesus raised from the dead, okay, we're with you. But the truth is, uh, I think that if we think about it, you know, it's 2,000 years later, and if the women walked into church today and they told us what they saw, I don't think that we would believe them. In fact, um, I think that if some of the biblical leaders, like um, Deborah from the Old Testament, and Lydia from the Philippian church, or even Mary, the mother of God, if she walked in to a church today, I think that we would tell her to sit down and submit to male authority. And I think that uh, there's a danger here um, because the early church would just not have grown the way that it did if it weren't for the leadership of women. And so um, the disciples, when they own up to the fact that they didn't believe the women, that is when Jesus finally speaks up and he says, you fools. But fools here, it's not, he's not calling them morons. It's sort of like he's calling them obtuse. Do you see the difference? He's saying, you're really slow on the uptake, folks. Like, I've, I've been saying it a lot, and you're just not picking up what I'm putting down. And so he starts to take them through all of the scriptures about himself, about a Messiah who suffers. So before the disciples can realize who Jesus is, they have to get the connection between suffering and glory. They have sort of missed that this crucial step for Jesus. He is following the path of all the prophets. Rejection, then suffering, then death. And somehow these guys thought that Jesus would just kind of skip over that last part, but that is not the case. Jesus has to follow this path. And so they have, um, they, they, aren't planning on this part of the story. Remember, the Jews, they were, they were hoping and praying on a Messiah who was gonna sort of be this conquering hero, who's gonna overthrow the Roman rule and restore them to power. Um, and the Messiah who suffers is just not, that's not congruent with who, who they were expecting. So uh, theologian uh, Joel Green, he tells us that what, can, what happened with Jesus can only be understood in light of the scriptures but the scriptures can only be understood in light of what happened with Jesus. Those things are mutually informing. So Jesus reacquaints these disciples with everything that was written in the scriptures about a Messiah who suffers. So they walk on, um, night is falling, it's time to stop and eat, they have to urge him strongly and he comes in and he sits with them and then, then we read these words. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. That should sound familiar, right? I mean, those are the words that we say every week when we take communion. But I, I wanna tell you that uh, although those words have a lot of weight now in the church, I mean, they be, they've come to be known as the words of institution, but um, that's, that's not exactly what Jesus was doing. This is not um, the first time that Jesus is administering communion after his resurrection. This is not the Emmaus Eucharist, if you will. Um, actually, what matters here, what, what's worth noting, is that those actions, taking, blessing, breaking, giving, those are the actions that any good first century pious Jew would have done in anticipation of any meal. So this is really normal. To the original audience, this doesn't set off any bells for them. What matters here is the who, not the what. So Jesus is giving the bread to the disciples. And in doing so, Luke is actually trying to draw our attention to another story. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember that? Back in Luke 9, Jesus tells us that, uh, Luke tells us rather, Jesus is there, but it's Luke telling us the story. Jesus had been teaching this crowd, it's 5,000 men plus women and children, and he's been teaching all day, it's afternoon, it's time to eat, um, and so Jesus takes what they have. It's this really humble, ordinary meal, five loaves, two fish. And um, he takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, 
He gives it to his disciples, and they give to everyone else, just like a good Jew would do at mealtime. So these ordinary actions, they take on some, uh, uh, an extraordinary life of their own. But the extraordinary thing is not that the food multiplied and fed everyone. Remember, it's the who that matters, not the what. And the who in the story is everyone. Everyone is at this meal. Men, women, children, Pharisees, clean, unclean, sinners, all of them. And Jesus, he, he takes this food and he gives it to them. And what's missing here in this meal is like all of the normal social structures. Meals then were about maintaining social um, boundaries between people, and all of that is missing. The, the food may or may not be clean. It may or may not have been prepared properly. No tithes have been paid on this meal. Uh, there's no water for the ceremonial washing. There's no barriers, no separation, no seat of honor at the table, no table at all. Jesus becomes the host to this magnificent feast where everyone is welcome and everyone is fed until they are full and then some, and no payment is required for this meal. This is extraordinary. I mean, this is the kingdom of God. The mercy of God is without limits, and it requires no repayment. That's what's extraordinary about the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus hosted this ordinary meal, and because uh, he did it because of the people that were there. It turns into something extraordinary. And the invitation here, friends, it's ours. Where in your life can you gather people without getting particular? Forget about the social barriers. Forget about all the extra details. You know, I'm not saying that you have to, like, literally replicate this meal in a picnic on the grass with bread and fish. If you're going to literally replicate something, make it the guest list. Everybody's invited, even the enemies. So I have to be honest, um, I'm failing at this part. I thought about all the people that I have gathered in my life in the last, like, six months to a year, and they all look like me. They all share my beliefs. They all share my uh, standard of living. Uh, They pretty much all look like me. I can think of one meal that I've had in the last year, six months to a year, where the guests weren't like me. So when I read this about Jesus, who's just blowing the lid off of the social structures, I I take pause, right? I I, I stop and I examine this more carefully. And so the, the truth is, I have to become more inclusive. I have to become more radical with my invitation because there is more room. There is always more room. Luke makes it abundantly clear that that this is Jesus, the one who is tearing down the barriers between people. And he does it best at meals. So for Luke, Jesus is the most Jesus in this moment at the Emmaus table when he is breaking bread with his friends, an ordinary meal. Jesus can be found at the communion table, but he can also be found at the dinner table. And I think I like to see Jesus at the table because I like to see people around my table. Um, On my first married Valentine's Day, my husband, you all know John, right? John, you might want to give a wave. (laughs) There he is. My husband, Jonathan, bought me a dining room table and chairs. So we'd been married for a few months. We'd been eating on a card table that we borrowed from friends. And we'd been sitting in um, the fold-up camping chairs. You know, they're kind of low to the ground, so it's sort of like, hey, like reaching up over the table. But on, on our date night that night, he took me to Crate and Barrel, and he led me over to this table, and he was like, I bought you this table today. Oh, 
It's like the grandest gesture anyone's ever done for me. I was overwhelmed. We went to dinner. We started dreaming about the people we would invite over and the community that we would build at the table. I was uh, so, so excited to start inviting people over. Um, actually, my brother, uh, the first time he came over to our house after we got the table, he walked up and he, he kind of rubbed his hands on the table and he goes, can't you just feel the community in this table? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Brother Jake. Um, But you know what? We had big plans for that table. And you know what we didn't plan on when we chose that table? This scene right here. That's like an average mealtime at my house right now. There's crusty food. I see some dishes that are left over from the last meal. I know that there's just as much crumbs under the table as there are on it right now. And, you know, the truth is, placemats can only do so much. Okay? All right. Any other parents out there? Okay. So that's ordinary. But there's something extraordinary about that because, you know, I know that Jesus can be found around the dinner table, especially when we have a a house full of people. And, you know, sometimes I feel it more even in the awkwardness when there's people around the table who aren't like me. I feel Jesus even more then. So it makes sense then, given how important meals are in Luke, uh, that uh, this is the moment that their eyes are opened. This is when they recognize him. They see him for who he is, when he does what makes him the most himself. And as soon as their eyes are opened, he disappears, he vanishes. So they turn to each other and they say, weren't our hearts burning inside us when we were on the road with him? That word burning, it's kayo, and it's sort of like a lamp that gets lit. So this fire is lit in them, and and it's, it's really burning because they're so excited that they actually get right up and they go all the way back to Jerusalem. It's seven miles. My husband is a runner. I'm not. He tells me that he could run seven miles in just under an hour. Is that pushing the jogging stroller with two children in it? No, maybe not. Okay, he's being modest. So, but walking pace more like three or four hours, okay? So they've spent all afternoon walking out to Emmaus, and then they hurry all the way back. When they get to Emmaus, or when they get to Jerusalem, rather, uh, they find the other disciples, and the disciples are saying to them, It's true. Jesus appeared to Simon. And the guys are like, fancy that. He appeared to us too. So they tell them the whole story. And then, friends, everyone is on the same page. There is no more running to the tomb to verify the account. No more doubting the women. They just all know that it's true. Um, Matt's always telling us that these stories, they're, they're not historical events. These things happen over and over and over again to us today. So the road is where Jesus meets the disciples. And it's where he meets us too. On the road, Jesus opened the scriptures to his friends, and they don't recognize him until they sit down at a table with him. The road from realization to recognition finds its end at the table. So participating with Jesus at the table is just as important as knowing Jesus in the scriptures. You can't have one without the other. And if you want others to recognize Jesus, you need to get them around your table. It doesn't have to be extraordinary. Jesus is all about the miraculous in the mundane. And my prayer for us is that we might recognize Jesus, that we would be looking for him. May we expect him. Um, But may we also be cautious of thinking that we've got him all figured out. Because the second that you think you know him, that's when he vanishes. So wherever you are on your road tonight, maybe you are leaving Jerusalem and you're full of hurt or confusion, or maybe you're rushing out of Emmaus and you're full of joy. Wherever we are, I just pray that tonight we would continue on that road toward full recognition together. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you are a God who comes close, that we can be, um, that we can recognize you, 
that you make yourself known to us. And Lord, I ask tonight that you would stir in our hearts a desire to make more room at our tables for you and for those who bear your image and your likeness, and that together we may journey towards fuller recognition of who you are in our lives and in your work in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.